0: Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and not all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Those are verses 47 and 48 of Psalm 106, verses 19 to 48 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, November the 21st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are, in some ways, to understand the liturgical church um, is to actually understand what's getting ready to happen. (laughs) We're out of step with the world in some ways, because the, the liturgical year ends on Saturday of this week and begins on Sunday with the first Sunday of Advent. We begin by looking forward to the coming of Christ And that's when the liturgical year begins. So when we uh, uh, have—everybody else is celebrating New Year, well, we've already come past that. We are are already celebrating the New Year beginning next week because we're looking to the coming of Christ, and then he's the center point of all creation. And so we, we begin our year, and it, it makes us a little bit out of step. Everybody else in the in, in the non-liturgical world, the the everybody else, including most Christians, <laughs> at least in the West, are celebrating Christmas now. Well. N- or Thanksgiving, I guess, for a lot of us here in the U.S., but, but we're celebrating, we're already looking forward to Christmas and, and, and acting as though it were already here at some level. It's the Christmas season. Well, no, not for, for me. It's the Advent season beginning next week, and so we're wrapping up this count, this liturgical calendar year this week. Um and then we begin to move into that season called Advent when we begin to prepare ourselves. And so the last things that we get are the warnings of God to prepare yourself. And then next week we begin to talk about that. And so today we're gonna to get that that notion of of what's wrong in our lives and what needs to be cleaned out in our lives in order to accept with joy the coming of Christ into the world. So today what we get is Zechariah 10, verses 1 to 12, is the Old Testament lesson. In the Gospel, we're still in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 to 30. And in Galatians now, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, we're going to skip around in the epistle this week. As I've said before, I just want to remind you, I don't choose these lessons. I, I get these from the uh Episcopal Book of Common Prayer from 1979, and these are the daily lessons that are, that are given for those that denomination's readings, and I just choose it because it's the one I'm most familiar with. So anyway, we get Zechariah 10, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. And, and so what he's saying is, is that when it's time, Ask for rain, and I've told you this before, that that when it's not time for rain, because they have rainy seasons there and dry seasons, and, and that when it's when it's not rainy season, they don't pray for rain, and it's partly because of this passage right here, they don't ask for rain out of season. What they do during that period of time is they give thanks for the dew that comes day after day after day. They don't pray for dew because it's part of the system that's baked in, and so it's there, and it provides the moisture necessary for things not to all just completely die. And so they they give thanks for that. And so now he says, ask for the rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, because there's certainly been times when they have droughts, and they don't receive those rains, and so they're commanded to pray for it. He said, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams, and they give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, they're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So there's, there's two things going on in this, and, and the spring rain is also a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for asking for God to come, and god's asking God to do things. And he's saying the household gods and the diviners are not gods at all, and yet people follow these things. And because they follow these things, they wander like sheep and afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Now, there are shepherds, and he's getting ready to rip into those shepherds. The, the shepherds are the leaders of the people, the people that he, has, he, God, has appointed. It's still true in our day today. And so, do the shepherds shepherd their people wisely? Do they shepherd them in the Word of God? And, and too often nowadays, it, the Word of God is barely touched upon at all. There's some other agenda that's going to be preached, and it's not going to be based in the Word of God, you're certainly not going to be exposed to the full counsel of God, which is all the Word of God. You know, They're going to take something out of context and then twist it to make the point that they want to make. I mean, I can remember, this is sort of my my uh, coup de grace for me, as far as my ability to stay in the Episcopal Church was concerned, was is that, that one year, this is meant now a long time ago. I mean, we're talking about probably nearly 30 years ago, There was a sermon that began on the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus, which is the day Jesus was dedicated in the temple. And so he was given a name. His parents came before the priests, and they they gave him to the Lord, and they said, this is his name. And that's the day that we know— when Simeon sees him and proclaims, mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all mankind, a light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. And he says, I'm ready to die now because I've seen this. So it, it's, it, that's the, the context. And then so the pretext of the sermon was this. I, I'll always remember the beautiful spring day. I was in Washington, D.C., and I was at the top of the Washington Monument, and there I saw unfurled across the mall the AIDS quilt, and I began to think about the importance of names. Huh. Well, I I think there's an agenda. I I think there's an agenda here. You're saying something that has nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with this day on the calendar. You have an agenda. And you bring the agenda in. That was the very first words that were spoken in that sermon. And then the same person, again, on Good Friday, began uh, uh, with I'll, this was 1995, so I just remembered the year. I'll always remember Holy Week of 1995 as the year the U.S. finally admitted it shouldn't have been in Vietnam. And that was the takeoff for the beginning of a sermon about the cross and Jesus' death on the cross. I'm sorry. Your agenda shines through in every single thing you do. Every time you speak, you tell me what you're about, and what you're about is not about the gospel. It's something else. And so that's exactly the problem here with shepherds. He says, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I'll punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. It's his flock, not theirs, his, the house of Judah, and will make them like majestic steeds in battle for From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. He said, I'm going to raise up my people. Without these shepherds, I'm going to raise up my own leadership. And the cornerstone, the tent peg, and the battle bow is Jesus. But but he's going to raise up people around Jesus. He's going to raise up an army of people. He said, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them from the Lord their God. And I will answer them. I'll hear their prayer and I'll come. And it'll be as though none of this had ever happened before. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I'll whistle for them and gather them in. I love that idea. I will whistle for them. God's going to whistle for them. That's not the only time, actually, that he whistles. But but it always kind of strikes me as humorous whenever I see that. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and there shall be as many as they were before. So my judgment will come, but I'm going to raise up more. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. These are the two places they went in the time of Jeremiah. They were taken away to Babylon, but others said, No, 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 I don't want to go to Babylon. I'm going to escape, and I'm going to go to Egypt. And so he says, I'll gather them from Assyria and I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there's no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So the people where my people are currently lodging someplace away from the promised land, I'm going to bring them back from there. And I'm going to pass judgment on those two nations when I do that. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in, his, na- in my, his name. Declares the Lord. In the gospel today, they were bringing even infants to Him so that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The children were were not valued in that culture, not greatly. They they, they just it was until you come of age. Well, we don't know whether you're going to come of age, is the first thought. But then, so, because we don't know if you're going to survive that long. But until you're taught and you're able to take your place in the synagogue, then you're really not very important to anybody outside your family. But Jesus called to them, to him, called them, the disciples, to him, saying, Let the children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus is saying you've got to humble yourselves before the Lord. They are the perfect example of the way you approach the throne and come into the kingdom is what Jesus is saying. You've got to be like them. And he, he's bringing them, these children, into the kingdom. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's a ruler there who wants to know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an odd question. What what do you have to do to inherit anything? Well, you have to be born into the right family. You have to be born into the right family. You have to do the things that are required of a child in that family, and then you can receive the inheritance because you can be disinherited for failing to be the kind of person to carry on that family name. So what do I have to do to inherit eternal life is is the kind of question that's an odd way of phrasing it. What can I do to get eternal life? How about that? That's a better way, I think, to answer that. And as a Jew, it's an odd question. The presumption is that he's a Jew, and there's a good reason to presume he's a Jew. But that's a good question, except for it's an unnecessary question, because their belief is, is that all Israel will participate in the life of the world to come. And so he asks, good teacher. He's flattering Jesus that doesn't mean he's insincere about it but but he's you know flattering him <laughs> and jesus said to him why do you call me good and and it's a good question and i know it's a good question because jesus asked it but but the word good there is all that matters why do you call me good no one is good except god alone we use that term far too um blithely we we don't we don't think about that we don't think about this word, use of the word good. I was teaching a group of people one time the, the Articles of Religion, which are the 39 basic tenets of Anglican belief. So Anglican is Church of England, the Episcopal Church, and, and its branches in, in about 37 other places. So what you get is, is is that there are no good works done prior to salvation because nothing can properly be termed good if it's not being done for the glory of God. And that really upsets people when you say that because they have a definition of good they want to use it's not his definition and so the word good properly belongs to god sort of like the rainbow belongs to god as well so he says um you know the commandments don't commit adultery don't murder don't steal don't bear false witness honor your father and mother there's others obviously but but what does he do he he only speaks of those that that are required of someone with regards to their neighbor he leaves out the first parts about honoring God and not having any other gods before him. Don't make idols, those things. He said, the man did, all these I've kept from my youth. Sounds like I'm good to go, huh? I've done those things. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Oh, (laughs) don't have any other gods before him. So what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? What does he tell the man? He says, you have to renounce your earthly inheritance because he's a a rich man. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. You lack one thing. I have everything Mm -hmm. and you need to get rid of it because it owns you. You don't own it. It owns you. And the proof is this. When he says, come and follow me, he says, well, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he's extremely rich. In other words, I can't, I can't do that. This stuff is too important to me. But what it says is, is that I don't see the value exchange in stuff that I can't see. I don't see that I'm exchanging this for something of greater worth and value because I can't see that stuff. So I, I, it's, it's like so many people. I want eternal life, but not at the price of giving up my earthly inheritance. No, I'm not going to give that up in order to have that. And, and Jesus is just showing that this owns you and you don't love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You might be doing the, the commandments vis a vis your neighbor, but you're, you're not loving God. You're clearly showing that you want to be in control. A, Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what's impossible with God is what's impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, hey, we've left our homes and followed you. We left everything else behind. We've done that. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And th- there's a huge truth in that, and I've experienced it. When we were in Pauly's Island, I, I, we, were, we were treated like children of many people. They would do anything in the world for us. And, and if they went on vacation, sometimes they'd say, hey, why don't you come with us? We'll, we'll, you, know, you can stay at our place. You can, you know, Whatever. I know that when for a long time when I went there, all I had to do was call a couple of people and say, hey, can I stay there? And I can still do that today. Some of those people have died. That's the reason I said, yeah, I used to be able to do that. But, but I could still do that today. I don't need a place at the beach. I can go see somebody and stay with those people at the beach. And they'll be happy to provide for me and show me hospitality, and that's what that means, and, and then I got treated like a son in some of these families. I mean, I, I grieved in 1999 when my father died, but then I had a couple of other older men who essentially stepped into that same role. They didn't know that. They didn't intend to do that, but they became sort of mentors and advisors for me, even though I was in my almost 40 years old. I still needed those men. And it was a blessing in my life. And I I, I mourned their loss. Probably not at the same level I mourned my father, but close. Because that's how that relationship was. In the epistle, Paul is wrapping up his epistle to the Galatians, and he's telling them basically how to live brothers if anyone's caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted so what he's saying there is is that that you restore him in a a spirit of gentleness because you're equally susceptible to temptation you're no stronger than they are they just happen to have fallen and and your job is to restore them with gentleness and why do you do that well because you're going to need it too he says, "Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." And bearing one another's burdens, there's a difference. He's going to say something in a minute. Each will have to bear his own load. So, bearing a burden is it, there's there's a certain amount that we all have to carry because of life. A burden is something in excess of that, you know. So, so things in life that happen that that are much more than the norm. Things you have to deal with: death, injury. Um, financial setback, all those kinds of things. He says, bear one another's burdens, come alongside that person and help them when they need you. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So don't set yourself above your brother. No, no, no. Humble yourself to help them bear that load. He said, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And that's one of the things that's so difficult for people to understand, and that is is that that the way we understand this is is that there are some people who will willingly cast their load upon you. They act like they're overburdened, and you're listening to their story thinking, I carry more than that on a daily basis. You're making mountains out of molehills, and we need to be on guard against that, and we need to be able to speak into that and to say— No, you know, I'm not taking that on. And and as a pastor, as a counselor, whatever, certainly there's a great temptation to take all that on for other people. But sometimes people just need to have to hear, you need to grow up. And you need to carry your own weight here. You know, other people have all these burdens as well. And they're, you know, doing these things. You don't get a pass on doing the Lord's work because, well, you know, you feel overburdened. I mean, I had a couple in the church that she was constantly doing this, and they were literally a couple. They didn't have children. They didn't have any of these other responsibilities that people had, and everything that came into her life was a tragedy and something that required other people to make allowances. No, 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 no. The load that you're carrying is pretty light compared to other people. You don't get to offload everything. So let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I mean, God's not a fool. And, and rewards are commensurate with effort. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's the rich young ruler that we just saw. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what's the most important thing in your life? You know, where are you sowing in this life? And if you're not sowing to the Spirit, if you're not sowing into the kingdom of God, then, well, you might have a problem. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. And remember, that goes back to that Zechariah passage, pray for the rain when it's time for the rain. In due season, we'll reap if we don't give up. And I don't know what when due season is. He does. But he says, keep on doing good. Even if you don't see the return in the present, keep doing good. Because ultimately, he says, you will in due season if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So judgment begins at the house of God, but but also so does charity. And so does love. It begins at the household of God. Everything begins there. For Christians, we've been brought into a new family. We need to understand that family in that way. You know, sometimes we don't understand it until, well, we actually have deep need of that family. It's true every single day. Now, go out and act like it.